When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Inside the Board Study Smarter series dedicated to helping you learn to think like a question writer so you can study smarter, not harder, and succeed on your exam. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of our Study Smarter series, Step 1 edition. I'm your host, Amy Chattel, and the theme for this week's episode is behavioral health and psychiatry. Today's episode is going to be pretty fast-paced, so without further ado, let's get right into the questions. Which of the following explains this patient's condition? A 55-year-old male is brought to the emergency department in a confusion state. He is accompanied by his daughter, from whom the history is taken. Past medical history is significant for diabetes, atrial fibrillation, and small bowel resection due to mesenteric ischemia. The patient lives alone. His daughter frequently does visit. He drinks alcohol on a daily basis. Vital signs are 102 beats per minute, a blood pressure of 111 over 72, a respiratory rate of 22 breaths per minute, and temperature of 99 degrees Fahrenheit. Physical examination is unremarkable. Which of the following best explains this patient's condition? A. Vitamin B6 deficiency. B. Vitamin B1 deficiency. C. Vitamin B2 deficiency or D, magnesium deficiency? And the correct answer is B, vitamin B1 deficiency. Now before we go any further, what is another name for B6? Pyridoxine. What's another name for B1? Thiamine. B2? Riboflavin. B3? Niacin. I highly encourage you to learn not only B1, B2, B3, but also the names because they're going to come up in both forms at some point on step one, on wards, or even when you're just reading the back of a nutrition label. All right, anyway, back to the answers. You most likely guessed this is probably Wernicke-Korsakoff syndrome, and that was probably purely based on the fact that our patient is mentally altered. The question stem did point out that he was drinking regularly, The syndrome classically described is a clinical triad consisting of altered mental status, so a confusion or it might appear as like a dementia state, nystagmus or ophthalmoplegia, and ataxia. However, less than a third of patients actually present with the complete triad. I'm pretty sure on step one they'll probably give you the full triad, but I did want you to clue into this possibly with a stem that didn't have all three. The cause of Wernicke-Korsakoff syndrome is a deficiency of thiamine or vitamin B1. Individuals with poor nutrition for any reason are at risk for this disorder. They could throw at you a malnourished tea and toast kind of diet uh, grandmother instead of 
someone who has um, a substance use disorder. Also, you'll notice in this stem, this patient had a bowel resection in the past, and thiamine is absorbed in the small intestine. So this most likely also contributed to his thiamine or vitamin B1 deficiency. Lastly, uh, prophylactic thiamine administration is relatively safe and should be started even if the diagnosis has not been confirmed. However, in big bold letters, thiamine should be administered before glucose to avoid precipitating or exacerbating Wernicke-Korsakoff syndrome. All right, moving right along. A 35-year-old woman is being evaluated for bipolar disorder. The patient noticeably is seen wearing a lot of makeup and appears to be very intrusive and over-familiar with her treatment team. She identifies herself as the Queen of Sheba. She has not slept all night and has been running around the hallways and disturbing other patients. She has had this behavior for about 10 days. What phase of bipolar disorder is she in? A. Hypomanic B. Manic C. Depressive or D. Mixed And the correct answer is B. Manic. So this patient has symptoms of an acute manic episode. This does include impulsivity, psychomotor agitation, insomnia, euphoria, and grandiosity, the Queen of Sheba comment. So now, the key point, I think, from this question is that mania can be differentiated from hypomania with the time duration of the symptoms. So mania has to be present for seven days or more, or ending in a hospitalization that would you know, cut those seven days shorter. And then hypomania lasts for about four days only and may interfere less with functioning. Just a side note, mania can also present with psychotic symptoms. Another criteria for diagnosis is the decline in the functioning of the individual um, to be diagnosed as mania as opposed to hypomania. Another key point I wanted to point out, patients with bipolar disorder can also present with depressive, hypomanic, and mixed episodes. A depressive episode would be characterized by your Siggy cap, so depressed mood, anhedonia, disturbance in their sleep, their appetite, guilt, psychomotor retardation, etc. Um, a mixed episode has both elements of manic and depressive episodes at once, and it is super essential to screen for both suicidal and homicidal ideation in patients diagnosed with bipolar disorder. I then just wanted to briefly touch on bipolar 1 and bipolar 2 disorder because I remember kind of getting confused with them when I was studying for step 1. So bipolar 1, I think of as the one symptom to rule them all. Um, so in bipolar 1, it's really hard to miss the mania. Whereas in bipolar 2, I think of kind of there are two things going on, obviously not at the same time. But you have a hypomania, so that four-day duration where they might not be ending up in the hospital or in jail or losing their job, but there's definitely an elevation in their day-to-day -day demeanor. And then they also have to have some kind of depressive episode as well, and that has to be two weeks in duration um, or more. And also just to clarify, bipolar 1 does not have to have a depressive episode to be categorized as bipolar 1. They can have depressive episodes 
but it is not necessary for diagnosis. Whereas, like I said, for bipolar 2, you'd have two things, a hypomanic episode and a depressive episode. Okay, next question. A 22-year-old female is brought to the emergency department in a drowsy state. Her friend states that she has ingested an unknown medicine. She has a history of depression for which she is on medication. Vital signs are a pulse of 110 beats per minute, blood pressure of 98 over 58, respiratory rate of 20 per minute, and a temperature of 100 degrees Fahrenheit. Physical examination reveals hot and dry skin. There is a rapid heart rate without any rub or gallop on auscultation. What is the most common cause of fatality associated with this medication? A. Hypotension B. Respiratory depression C. Arrhythmia or D. Renal failure The correct answer is C. Arrhythmia. Now, people will point out that tricyclic antidepressants, TCAs, which is most likely what this patient was taking, do cause severe hypotension, arrhythmias, and coma when it comes to overdosing. But the most lethal effect is the cardiac toxicity. So a characteristic QRS prolongation um, is seen in TCA overdose, and it's secondary to a prolongation of phase zero of the myocardial action potential. This effect leads to a heart block and bradycardia. The arrhythmia can lead to ventricular fibrillation, and I know I'm building up to it, but the arrhythmia that you're most likely going to see on a rhythm strip is torsades de points. And the torsades de point is due to QT prolongation due to potassium channel blockade. Next question. An 80-year-old man is brought to the hospital with agitation. On examination, his pulse is 98 beats per minute and blood pressure is 110 over 80. The pupils are reactive and about 2 millimeters in size. His wife says that he has a heart condition but cannot specify which one or what kind it is. She only mentions that sometimes he feels palpitations and takes medication for this problem. A dopamine antagonist is being considered for his agitation. Which of the following complications is most likely to occur in this patient with this treatment? A. Prolongation of the QT interval. B. Elevation of hepatic enzymes. C. Elevation of creatinine. Or D. A decrease in red blood cells. And the correct answer is A, prolongation of the QT interval. So the dopamine antagonist that they're most likely considering is probably haloperidol because it's, it's typically used in acute agitation in a clinical setting. Unfortunately, it can prolong cardiac conduction, so that prolonged QT. And we know from the stem that this patient has occasional palpitations, which may be a sign of arrhythmia. There is an increased risk of torsade de point. In patients with cardiac arrhythmias, alcohol use disorder, or dilated ventricles. Haloperidol should not be administered if a prolonged QT exists already. The patient should be monitored closely if they are receiving haloperidol for prolongation of the QT interval and they don't already have a known prolonged QT interval. So this means we definitely should be getting a baseline EKG. And on that note, all typical antipsychotics do have the adverse effect or the potential adverse effect of cardiac arrhythmias, so that QT prolongation, so they all need baseline EKGs. All right, moving right along. A 34-year-old 
female patient presents to her primary care provider convinced that she has lung cancer due to occasionally coughing at night. Despite various providers informing her that she does not have lung cancer or any lung disease, she continues to believe that she has lung cancer. What psychiatric disorder does this woman most likely have? A. Somatic symptom disorder. B. Conversion disorder. C. Illness anxiety disorder. Or D. Malingering. And the correct answer is C. Illness anxiety disorder. Alright, so let's like walk through a couple of these things. Somatic symptom disorder is incorrect, as the patient in this scenario is focusing on one somatic complaint. Patients with an illness anxiety disorder will frequently misinterpret normal bodily sensations or occurrences as pathological, as described in this scenario. The patient does not have a conversion disorder, as a conversion disorder typically presents as a neurological complaint after a traumatic event. Malingering is also not correct, as no secondary gain was described in this scenario. And lastly, patients with an illness anxiety disorder are typically resistant to reassurance provided by multiple healthcare professionals. Next question. A 46-year-old male is brought to the clinician by his wife after she found him talking to himself several times over the past few weeks. The patient has a positive family history for intellectual disorders. He is eventually diagnosed with schizophrenia. The clinician is deciding what drug should be given to this patient. Haloperidol and chlorpromazine are both older, but still use antipsychotic drugs. Both have similar actions and side effects. Compared to chlorpromazine, which one of these side effects occurs more frequently and with greater severity with haloperidol? A. Orthostatic hypotension. B. Urinary retention. C. Intense atropine-like side effects. Or D. Extrapyramidal symptoms. And the answer is D. Extrapyramidal symptoms. Let's break that down a little bit. So basically, extrapyramidal symptoms can occur with more rapid onset and greater severity with our typical antipsychotics, high potency. So that would be your flufenazine, your haloperidol, your atropine-like side effects, your orthostatic hypotension, and the urinary retention are all more common side effects with chlorpromazine based on its anticholinergic properties. Alright, moving on to the next question. A 55-year-old male is seen by the oncologist during a follow-up visit. He was recently diagnosed with metastatic small cell carcinoma of the lung. The patient is a farmer and has come in with his wife. This is his third visit after receiving the diagnosis. He is irritated that the doctor has not been able to manage his pain. He states his previous diagnosis is just some new fancy disease doctors come up with. He has continued to work in his fields and wants some medication for his pain and weakness. His wife has been trying to convince him to check into a hospice facility, but he has refused, stating that he does not have time for all of this nonsense. His harvest is due in the next few months, and he wants the doctor to prescribe some fancy medications. What would be an appropriate response by the treating physician in this case? A. Prescribe oral morphine and state that will make the symptoms go away. B. Confront him with the facts that he is dying and has little time left. C. Show him what is going to happen to him by visiting a hospice care facility. Or D. Ask him what he thinks is responsible for his symptoms. And the correct answer is D. Ask him what he thinks is responsible for his symptoms. 
Now, this patient has recently received unfortunate news of a terminal diagnosis. Individuals who receive news that they are dying or have some incurable illness often demonstrate different psychological reactions to the news. These stages of grief are commonly stated as denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and lastly, acceptance. The coping mechanism adopted will be unique to each individual and based on their unique strengths and vulnerabilities, and they might cycle through these really quickly, they might skip a few steps, but these are very common stages of grief for anyone receiving some kind of terrible news. So this patient is displaying signs of denial, which is a common coping mechanism in individuals who are forced to face the diagnosis of a terminal illness. It is important to realize that this response is essentially protective, and we should allow patients to deal with their illness kind of on their own terms and process these things at their own speed. So our job as clinicians is to respect and support these patients, and in particular, this question stem, this patient's defenses, will often yield far more therapeutic benefit um, in the long run than trying to override them. In situations like this, one must try to use the positive aspects of the interaction to achieve the best results without trying to undermine the patient's defenses. I will point out, despite his denial, this patient has returned to follow up with their physician. This opportunity can be used to encourage the patient to talk about what he thinks is causing the symptoms and what are his expectations from the treatment. This will help in building a mutual understanding and may open up avenues to explore his other concerns. Lastly, every individual will process bad news, like I said, in their own unique way. Really hitting this point home again, it is important to respect your patient's defenses and not be confrontational. The answer in these kind of questions will never be a really confrontational answer. Confronting your patient and showing him patients with an advanced disease is likely to put more emotional strain on him um, and the physician-patient relationship, which you want to be very strong, especially in end-of-life care situation. Prescribing analgesia without discussing or exploring his concerns would also fail to deal with the psychological aspects of this patient's disease. Although it does sound like this patient is probably in a decent amount of pain, um, so that would be a good follow-up if this question wasn't directed pretty much at those stages of grief and how to handle them. Moving right along. A 35-year-old man diagnosed with his first episode of psychosis is admitted to an inpatient psychiatric hospital. During the interview and mental status exam, the patient is unable to answer questions in a straightforward manner. Though he does eventually answer the clinician's questions, he often includes unnecessary and irrelevant details before doing so. What is the term given to this type of speech and thought process? A. Circumstantial speech B. Tangential speech C. Linear speech, or D, evasive speech. And the correct answer is A, circumstantial speech. So, this is something I definitely remember struggling with preparing for step one. Circumstantial speech is the characteristic uh, providing extraneous or sometimes irrelevant information that diverts away from the main point of a conversation before finally arriving back at the main point. Unlike in those who exhibit tangentiality, patients who are circumstantial do eventually arrive at their main point of a conversation or the answer to a question. 
So long story short, tangential, we are going off on a tangent that never gets back to the point. And circumstantial, we're going to like talk about a bunch of other things, but we eventually kind of circle back (laughs) to what we are supposedly answering about. So what is circumstantiality really code for? So it's characteristic of a nonlinear thought process and speech of patients with thought disorders or mood disorders with thought disturbances. So in thought disorders or mood disorders with thought disturbances, circumstantiality often improves and sometimes disappears as patients improve clinically and are stabilized on an effective medication regimen. All right, and going to move on to our last question of this session. A 65-year-old male presents to the clinic with complaints of difficulty sleeping. The patient has a sleep latency of two hours and sleeps for only four hours at a time with no afternoon nap. He has tried multiple herbal teas and over-the-counter medicines, but to no avail. He works as a partner at a law firm and describes his job as very stressful. He requests a sleep aid. Which of the following is the least preferable drug for this condition? A. Romelteon B. Clonazepam C. Melatonin Or D. Trazodone And the correct answer is B. Clonazepam I'm sure this has been completely (laughs) hammered into your heads, but I'm going to really drive this home again. Before we had other sleep aids, benzodiazepine drugs were traditionally used for the treatment of insomnia that was resistant to non-pharmacologic measures. However, their serious adverse effect profile has really limited their use in the elderly and really the general population as well. Benzodiazepines can cause confusion, drowsiness, sedation, ataxia, lethargy, and motor impairment. Now, our elderly adults are specifically sensitive to the effects of benzodiazepines. It does significantly increase the risk of falls and fractures. And we know that specifically if an elderly patient has a hip fracture, they have a higher mortality rate as opposed to their age-matched peers who don't have a hip fracture. So giving an elderly patient a medication that is potentially habit-forming and really increases their chances of being drowsy and falling and potentially fracturing and basically shortening their life. Basically not a great medication option for our elderly adults. Remelteon, melatonin, and trazodone have much safer profiles and are generally preferred in the elderly having sleep troubles. And with that, we're finished with the questions for this episode. Thanks for joining me and learning a little bit more, refreshing a little bit more of your behavioral and psychiatry-based step one material. Keep up the good work. I know you can do it. You know you can do it. We believe in you um, from inside the boards. You've got this. Bye.